Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Buddhish. This week, we will be celebrating the year anniversary of Bright on Buddhism first going on the air. So, as you're listening to this, or as it's uploaded, on September 3rd, 2022, that'll be one year since we uploaded our very first episode. We're going to talk about some of the things that we've learned along the way, some of the things that we've liked and disliked, and some reflections about the things that we've talked about so far. Yeah. So, we've been at this for a year now. That's a thing. To start with, I'm very proud of the fact that both of us have stuck to this and have done as good of a job as we have in terms of uploading consistently and getting a lot of good questions from our listeners and answering those questions and discussing those questions. And I'm also very happy with the learning experience that it's been for me and for hopefully the people who have been listening. Yeah, uh, this is probably the longest I've been on a creative... Okay, actually, I guess it would be the second longest I've ever been on a creative project. Uh, The other one, a project that we'll probably talk about soon. But yeah, um, full year being uh, co-host and editor on this podcast. uh, For me, a big part of it was proving that I could still do this kind of thing. This is the most active I've been on a project since I ended up disabled. So figuring out a workflow that works around the fact that I have to do this in bed has been useful and uh, useful and encouraging, I guess. And we all applaud you for being able to work that back into your routine. You know, this kind of thing strikes in unimaginable ways and affects unimaginable domains of a person's life. And it's been awesome that you've been able to actually, you know, work this in and still be able to be as productive as you have been. You've put more man hours into this show than even I have in a lot of ways. And I have a lot of respect and admiration for you being able to do that, given that you have the the disability that you have. Yeah, I don't want to linger too long on the disability, but thanks. And a lot of it is about finding a workflow that is sustainable is the big thing. Of course. Uh, and we've managed to do that pretty well. Uh, like, it's been like, you're very easy to work with. Thank you. And, and you as well. it's, and, uh, it's just every once in a while, you see an opportunity and go for it. And as soon as you said, hey, I'm trying to work on a podcast, uh, I'd known you before then long enough to know that you're a decent dude. And uh, so that was just like immediate, an immediate like, oh, hey, this is something that could actually work. It was not like it didn't take me long to conceive of how this would work out. I appreciate you saying that. And I want to say also, I I feel the same way about whenever you sort of bit, whenever I, um, you know, put my, put my hook out there. I, um, I had, I have known you for a while as well. And I have always appreciated your skeptical perspective, but your willingness to still get in it and still, uh, maybe put on the ideology that you're talking about for a brief time period just to see it out and then, you know, step back out of it later for the purpose of analysis and for the purpose of coming to some sort of understanding of it that's grounded in 
you know, a very real life, very practical and pragmatic way of understanding things. Thank you. So, yeah. Uh, what else should we talk about here? Like we've we've been we've managed to upload something every Friday. I don't think there are like, there are a lot of projects that have not been able to do that, especially consistently. Yes, and I'm very happy that we have had 52 Fridays under under our belt, given Western holidays and given us moving different places, different times, and me being in graduate school and you having your disability and all of us just having life happen. I mean, it's yeah. regardless of what the product even is, I think it's something to be proud of to have been able to stick to it every single Friday for 52 weeks. That's a big achievement. Yeah. And I have no intention of allowing that to slip for for now at least. And I'm the so, same. So we're still going to keep doing this. Um, what else? So I thought it would also be good to talk about and reflect the, the things we've talked about. Um, the things that we have discussed on the show and how we feel about those things and what we have learned in the intervening year since we last had a casual, non-scholarly conversation about Buddhism. So I've seen um, you prepare you prepared some notes before this episode and shared them with me, and I see some of the positives and negatives um, that you have discussed in talking about like where you stand with regards to Buddhism. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about those sorts of things that you were thinking about? Sure. So keep in mind, this is a Western agnostic coming at an Eastern religion. So, you know, there's, you know, my, my perspective is going to be outsider in certain ways, and that's both a good and bad part of this experience. Like, that's just how it's going to have to go. Um, my overall opinion trends positive. Um, but I'm going to start with the parts that I don't like, mainly because most of these are really quick. Like, there's not a lot of discussion to be had here. So, um, starting with the negatives, uh, the misogyny in the religion sucks. I'm aware that it's an old religion and it is entirely anachronistic to put today's standards on a religion this old. But also, the misogyny sucks. Yeah, and you kind right. of have to. I mean, as, as hesitant as one might be to look back 2,500 years and say, you know, according to what I'm saying now, what I believe now, what the world believes and knows now, this this thing sucks. I think you're supposed to because then you're able to filter it out and adapt it and keep it functional. Keep it so that it actually is relevant and we can throw out the parts that are harmful and maybe in some way optimize. Yeah. So, um, the victim-blaming nature of karma sucks. And that's – that probably – like, it's – there's no ill will intended there. Like, there – I think that many Buddhists would agree that the victim-blaming nature of karma sucks, but also it's still there. It absolutely is. You know, there's none of this, like, everything that you're miserable, that you are miserable about, that you're experiencing, all of that, you should feel bad about that, and you should blame your yourself. But there is still the sense that, like, 
everything that is happening to somebody good or bad is actually like because of their activities in a past life, something they had no control over and have no control over now, meaning you can't look back in the past and change any of that. And so that part is kind of like a trap. That part is definitely like victim blamey. And that part I agree is terrible. So the ableism that comes into the religion sucks. Um, I, there's like, I mean, I'm disabled in a way that has made it so that there are a lot of things I can't do. And a lot of those things that I can't do keep me out of monastic life. I'm not interested in being a monk, but if I were, I would not physically be able to. And that's just unfortunate. On At some point, there there has to be a sign out front that says you must be this tall to ride. You know, like as a matter of safety, that has to be there. And it's entirely reasonable that, you know, if I were to go to a Zen monastery and say, I want to be a Zen monk, and they're like, you realize we're going to kick your ass and your back is wrecked, right? We can't let you do that. In all good conscience, they really can't. But also, that still sucks. It does. And, you know, that's a very specific dimension of ableism towards you. And there absolutely is that towards people like you with your disability. But in addition to that, there's so many other little points that, you know, we haven't really discussed in detail. And we don't really need to go over every single little one now. But others that I have noticed in thinking about this question include things like, for example, you have only ever heard discussion of the Dharma in the context of the six senses. And what if somebody is blind or deaf and something like that? What if somebody is paraplegic or quadriplegic and they don't have a sensation of touch on most of their body? There's, there's, the, there's plenty of situations where one of those six senses drops out for one reason or the other. And in those cases, those people are just kind of ignored in the texts and they're not really regarded as being able to participate in the same system. And going back to the victim blaming thing, the reason why they don't have that sense is because of some sort of karmic retribution that they're experiencing from a past life, which they cannot control, which they cannot go back and fix, which they had no current present conscious participation in. That whole thing is is incredibly, incredibly ableist. And I don't think that when it comes to things like blindness, deafness, quadriplegic stuff, whatever. I don't think that any sort of modern Buddhist would look at that person and say, like, you are not allowed in the system. We don't account for you. But they would also still say, like, but you have to be able to read the sutras and you have to be able to recite the sutras. You have to be able to listen to the Dharma. There are certain things, like you say, you must be this tall to ride this ride. And some people with their disabilities, they will not be able to ride that ride. It could be as simple as, like, aphantasia is a thing. That's the inability to visualize images. Exactly. So much of meditation is visualization. Folks with aphantasia are uh, cut out from that, and that's unfortunate. It's unavoidable, too, to be fair. Like, Again, you must be this tall to ride. That that sign is out there for a reason. Exactly. And, you know, these things are barriers to monastic life and certain practices. And I would hope that they don't pose barriers to 
taking the parts that someone personally relates with or identifies with in the entire system and applying those and throwing out the other ones. Like you say, you know, you aren't terribly interested in a monastic life and maybe somebody with a disability is out there and that's very unfortunate that they are barred from that. But the bright side, I guess you might say, is that you still always maintain the ability to say, well, okay, I can't do this visualization meditation, but maybe I can still do compassion and loving kindness by means of almsgiving, or maybe I can still do some sort of Vipassana meditation, which is like slowing down meditation, right? Where your mind slows down or something like that. Hopefully, there are other avenues that you can still participate through, but at the same time, you know, there are things that bar you out of specific monastic experiences, and that's unfortunate. Yeah. So the next one, and this one is the first one that I think is really avoidable and like an actual, this comes with some judgment. Um, the cross denominational sniping sucks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. the way, the way, you know, Mahayana sutras refer to Theravada practices sucks. And we haven't really, I haven't really seen as much of that in what we've studied, but I would be expecting that there are Theravada responses to that that do the same thing. Like, this is something that I think is probably common in most religions, where the people that they are most at conflict with are the ones that are similar except in this one thing. Like we see it in the different, the, you know, Catholic Protestant divide. We see it in Sunni Shia divide. And now we're seeing it in Mahayana Theravada. Like, you know, that might, it might just be something that is inherent to human behavior. That means this thing is going to come up a lot, but it's, it's a shame to see it in, you know, a religion that I, originally hoped would be beyond that a little bit, but it's not. I absolutely agree. And, you know, as soon as you said, like, unavoidable, I understood that you mean that it's unavoidable in the sense that we don't have to be jerks. But I then immediately thought of all of those types of cross-denominational arguments that you brought up, like Sunni Shia divide, Catholic Protestant divide, and even like inter-Protestant divides and so on. Right. And I'm like, well, is it? <laughs> is it unavoidable if we're yeah. going to be talking about a religion? And um, yeah, I'm That's finding myself point. too that it's not. <laughs> unavoidable unavoidable might have been the wrong word. Uh, this one is definitely human origin. Yes. This is definitely That's not I mean. like... So it's it's human origin in the sense that these denominational conflicts that these human beings, regular human beings are have are sort of being projected and copied and pasted onto the Buddha so that they are kind of affording the Buddha these words that they want him to say to them to justify their own prejudices against these denominations. And that's where it starts to suck, you know, because that's not really the message. Like the message of the Buddha is not that if you're Theravada, you are inferior that's not what we're supposed to be taking away from this. And that's not what we're supposed to be meditating and training and reading and reciting for. That's kind of, that's when somebody has projected their own prejudices onto what you might call quote unquote, the divine and thus elevated their own bad opinions to the level of the sacred. And that's just not good. Yeah. You know that you have made your own God when they hate the same things you do. 
So, uh, that's unfortunate. Um, next, the duration of life in the Naraka's sucks. So, this one is probably, well, okay, probably is the wrong word. Perhaps not meant to be taken literally, because, you know, we've talked before a lot of, a lot of the goal of Buddhist writing is to knock one out, knock out one's understanding, overload, you know, the normal way we think about things. And one way to do that is to invoke very, very long times. And the Narakas are a place where they can do that. And so, you know, when I first approached the Buddhist afterlife, I was originally very comforted by the idea that the duration of hell is finite. Like, that is the biggest thing that I have against the Abrahamic religions. There, like, you can't, you can't, there is no instance ever where a, where finite transgressions should ever result in infinite punishment. So, when I first approached the Buddhist afterlife, I'm like, oh, hey, it's not permanent. That's a huge upgrade. And then I looked at the duration and saw scientific notation, and a lot of that praise had to be taken back, because a billion years is a really long time, and we're talking... The durations of the Rakas, the numbers I saw is billions of billions. Like, ah, that's that might as well be forever. Like that that's such a long time. Exactly. And you know, the only doctrinal explanation there really is is like the one you provided, which is it's going to overload our understanding of time. But the other side is that it's also trying to be like a, a, a fear tactic. It's going to discourage people from doing anything that will land them there. And if you're gonna do that, then you might as well sort of I don't know. It may seem strange to say this, but if you're going to do that, then you might as well just say it's infinite. <laughs> if you're going to make it be billions and billions and billions and billions of ages of astronomical time, and you're going to use that as a way to scare people, then what's really the difference? You know, And that's kind of what you were bringing up. What's really the difference between that and an Abrahamic religion? Um, we can take solace in the fact that it's impermanent because of the doctrine of impermanence, but like I, like you were saying, a billion ages of astronomical time is a very long time. And when you're there, you know, this is this is relativity at work. When you're there, a minute it doesn't pass the same way as a minute passes here. When you're there, a minute feels like an, a billion astronomical ages because it's going to be so miserable. You're going to be punished in some way for that. And so not only is it a billion astronomical ages, but so too is every single minute. And that just makes it longer and longer and longer and longer. It's like being in the waiting room with your mom at an office or a doctor's office or a dentist's office. And you had to wait for 20 minutes when you were like eight. And that was the longest time you ever had to wait in your life. But now, sometimes I can blink and 20 minutes have passed by. You know, imagine if that 20 minutes got extended out to a billion cosmic ages and also the doctor's office was really cold or really hot or something. And then you were being punished for something that you had no idea that you ever did, right? That's really bad. Yeah, it's unfair. And f and for what it's worth, I think most Buddhists would also say, yes, it's unfair. That's part of the point. Like, that's, that's part, like, 
that's why we're trying to get people out of this out of the situation. But anyway, last negative I'm going to bring up. Um, the idea of skillful means, as it has been presented in these episodes, is extremely abusable, I think. Um, the idea of the hidden, hidden bodhisattva doing bad things in order to increase the spiritual awareness of people out there. There's so many ways that somebody in bad faith can take that idea and manipulate people. I, I absolutely agree. Like, you know, that one, like, you know, that's the only real doctrine thing that I've seen that I immediately went, oh, this is bad. Like, this is that, like, there's, there's so many cult leaders who have probably said it's upaya, it's skillful means. Exactly. Yeah. Because it's people that we're talking about. Upaya gives people power and Upaya gives them a way to both elevate themselves to the level of an enlightened being and to also, like you say, excuse their bad behavior. You know, so whenever I was taught this in school, my professors were saying to me, like, if somebody is claiming Upaya, then it's likely that they're not using it because only enlightened beings can use it. And when they do it, they don't have to say that they're using it. So, like, they were basically telling me, you're kind of safe from bad actors in the cases of Upaya because only enlightened people understand it. And if it's an unenlightened person who's claiming to use it or an unenlightened person who is using it badly, then you're able to see through that and see that it's not Upaya. And I was like, that's a great explanation if we were at a monastery. But, you know, we just finished reading about this poet from the Heian period in Japan, so the 10th century roughly, who had sex with 3,000 women and his explanation for having doing having done so was that he was enlightening them, that he was a hidden bodhisattva, and that doing this was all upaya as part of his poetry. Just like his poetry, he said his poetry was also upaya. And all of that was just educating people on the passions. And then I was like, no, maybe he actually just had like a sex addiction problem or something. <laughs> you know, maybe he was just actually like not a nice guy. Maybe he wasn't a great person. And Maybe he was just using that to justify everything he had already done. Now that we've done, like, you know, I've done some study about what Upaya actually means in the origin. And, you know, now that I've done that, I understand, oh, somebody claiming to use Upaya is probably not. Like, but I've done some study of this. And if you haven't done the studying, you don't have that barrier up you don't have that defensive layer up it this and my, i'm talking about this could a shallow understanding of expedient means on the on the part of people leaves them vulnerable to bad actors it absolutely does and so yeah this my yeah i don't like it yeah well and whenever you learn the doctrine as well that vulnerability state that you're talking about happens to nearly everybody in a very strong way initially. So, whenever I first learned about this doctrine, as it's explained specifically in the Lotus Sutra, then I started questioning everything. Is everything Upaya? And that's what it wants you to do. That's what the Lotus Sutra challenges you to do. It challenges you to take Upaya beyond its logical conclusions. It takes Upaya and it makes it into 
the entire universe, right? And um, that leads into esoteric doctrines that we've talked about before. But that moment where you're looking at everything around you, the words on the page, the book you're holding, the people in the room with you, everything around you, and you're thinking, okay, is this all essentially like a what we would call in the West a white lie? Is this all something that is like teasing me or is like is is cheating me so that it can like raise my level of spiritual awareness somewhere higher than it already was? And in that moment, it's like scary for a moment. You're like anxious about it. For a moment, that takes a long time to get over. Yeah. Yeah, it does. You get anxious about it. And if somebody is able to is able to step in in that moment and take hold of that while you're in that vulnerable state, that's very dangerous. Yeah. That's how cults happen. Yeah. As, as a cult survivor, that is how cults happen. Absolutely. So – I said that we would be qu- fairly quick about the negatives, but we took a little while on that, so hopefully we can talk more about the positives now, because there are positives overall. I do think that overall, compared to other religions I've come in contact with, Buddhism is a healthy one. There, you know, I just listed my problems, and those are there, but there's a whole lot more to that, to the religion, and so let's get into some of the things I like. Um, non-dualism is a good idea. Um, the idea that things tend to take place on spectrums and that the boundaries that you're thinking about are often fuzzy and, you know, incomplete and not necessarily set. Like, that tracks with reality. And having a religion that also agrees with that aspect of reality is, like, it's solid. And also it's more central, more important to the religion, and it also destroys the misogyny aspects that we were talking about before. So, um, my, it's, you know, the misogyny in the religion sucks, but it's really easy, actually, if you look for it, to find the tools to take it out. Absolutely. I agree completely. I think that non-dualism, like you say, it challenges people to interrogate how they think about the world as it applies to, you know, am I diagnosing this correctly? Am I saying that this not being that or that not being this? Is that a correct distinction to make? Is it useful? Is it healthy? Is it helping me actually see the true nature of reality? Non-dualism challenges you to ask the hard question and then answers it for you with the answer no, right? It's saying that no, your duality is actually sort of misleading you and you should try again. And it's, it's perfect as like a passive doctrine to do that because it doesn't replace, it challenges you to interrogate yourself, but it doesn't replace the answer that you already had. It doesn't replace the answer that you naturally come to because then if it did that, it would almost be similar to Upaya. If it was, if it was like trying to make you question yourself and then provide the answer for you, right? That's, and lead you in a particular direction according to it. That's Upaya. And that can be bad. But non-dualism is something that we can meditate on for a thousand years and, you know, still sometimes never really fully get the implications and yet also still be improving as people. And at the same time, like you say, it's much more central than any of the misogyny is. It's certainly not older than the misogyny in the texts, if I'm going to take philological philology 
the study of text by means of their of their language and the layers by which you can diagnose the age of certain parts of text based on the words and the writing they use. If I'm going to take that perspective, the misogyny comes first and non-dualism comes later. But I think that what you, st- what you say still holds true because we're 2,500 years later and it doesn't really matter that 500 year difference in a very practical sense between you know, the first sermon and non-dualism as a concept coming up in the texts. Um, it still absolutely does completely destroy and contradict the misogyny and it absolutely should do so. And I think that it's a great tool for taking it out and for moving on and optimizing, like I say. Like I was saying before about the misogyny, it's a great way to um, take that whole concept away and write it off as being, you know, an inferior and primitive, premature way of thinking about things. So the next doctrine I wanted to talk about, uh, impermanence. Again, this one's going to be a close, quick one because it's just this tracks with what reality shows us. Exactly. Uh, we can act like we can see impermanence in action. Uh, like even, you know, once upon a time, they might have, somebody might have said, like, the stars are permanent, but like, now we know that's not the case. Even the stars are going to burn out one day. So it's good to have a religion that acknowledges and deals with that. And it's in particular good to have one that just simply doesn't try to challenge the reality that we can observe. You know, for example, like, the reality that we observe according to science is the age of the earth is more than 6,000 years. And there are certain stories in the Bible that claim that the age of the earth is 6,000 years. And like, they just disagree. One just tries to trample over the other. And I know which side I fall on, on that debate, but impermanence doesn't even, it's not even trying to put a number on it, but it's definitely trying to say like, this is how reality is and either scientific methods or spiritual methods, they won't trample over each other and disagree in this case because this is universally observable. This is something that's just capital T true. I'm not sure I would say capital T true just because I don't know that anything is capital T true, but that's me being agnostic. Sure. And it's still, and like, it's still close enough that I see what you're getting at. Like, yeah. Yeah. It certainly doesn't disagree with anything that I see in my daily life. And, you know, the 6,000 years old story absolutely does. Right. So next, non-self. This is a good doctrine as well in both directions. So the way non-self works, you can zoom in and say, I am not, you know, there is no self because I... I am not what I think I am. Like you zoom in and it like when you're zooming in non-self is about the relative lack of importance of an individual. Like it's like you're small and that's part of existing. Whereas when you zoom out, it's talking about more communal things. So there's no self in that you are part of a community, part of a species, part of being a living being. So non-self encourages selfless behavior. Like, I hate to be corny about it, but that's the way the words work. 
uh, it encourages selfless behavior in a way that I think is healthy. And so, yeah, non-self, good idea. Also, the idea of there of there being no soul, again, as an agnostic, that's just me going, well, yeah, I'm fine with that. Like, you know, in my daily life, I think of the idea of the eternal human soul as a comforting technique, something to make death seem less frightening rather than something that actually has support. And, you know, a religion agreeing with me on that is, uh, I sub- I'm not sure what the right word would be, but like, I'm glad to hear a religion agree with me on that. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree completely about what you said about the zoomed in perspective of the, of the smallness and just sort of the blip in the, in the entire samsaric trajectory. And then zooming out and seeing um, the emphasis on living selflessness. I think that as corny as it sounds, it's no accident that non-self and selfless and generosity and kindness and compassion all are, they have the relationship that they do in English in the same way that they do in Sanskrit. Like selfless giving in Buddhism is actually truly selfless giving. You know, there is no self giving. There is nothing being given, nothing received, no one giving, no one receiving, right? That is true selfless giving. And that is the kind of giving that we ought to strive for. That's the kind of behavior in all cases that we ought to strive for. There's nothing transactional. There's nothing instrumental. There's nothing that can be leveraged, right? In any of, in any of those selfless, truly selfless cases. And I think that that, I think that's an important quality about ourselves to emphasize because as humans, you know, we have a lizard brain whose entire job is to perpetuate the delusion of self, the delusion of existing and the delusion of permanence. And then of course, the perpetuation of that same delusion. And what I mean by that is, you know, all of our biological food-seeking behavior, community-seeking behavior, all of our danger-avoidance behavior, all of our sort of manipulative ways that we relate with other creatures, all for the purpose of survival, we have to sort of go back against that and not lean into that. And that's that's one of the most important things about non-self. It represents sort of shaking loose of the lizard brain because we don't need it as much anymore. Right. It's time has passed, and selfishness is destroying the world now. And so, the time for that lizard brain is over. Like, we need to get rid of it and start looking at the bigger picture. Exactly. So, next, uh, the idea of desire as being unhealthy, as a thing to defeat, as a thing to transcend, is really useful Especially when you've got capitalism on the brain. Uh, yes. You know, American school system in the 90s. Uh, I was told that capitalism was a good thing and I was not really given much chance to explore that. And so I've gone in the past, I have gone through a lot of strife because I was reaching for something that I wanted. And then when Buddhism comes in and goes, no, wait, maybe desire's not a good thing. Maybe you should think about that for a minute. After actually thinking about that, I noticed several things that I was working for that I 
in the end didn't really even want. And so being able to give having that voice to say, hey, wait, actually think about this for a minute is something I think a lot of people who are currently enmeshed into all of the manipulation that goes into a capitalist system could use. It's something that a lot of people should hear. I agree completely. You know, this is totally counter to any sort of materialism that would arise. It's totally counter to any sort of hedonism that would arise and that is valued and supported and perpetuated by the capitalist system that you're talking about. And this idea on a large species level scale that desire is useless, that desire is useless at best and unhealthy and terrible at worst is absolutely helpful to this world now, right? Because it is truly desire for something that is unsustainable and unattainable and untenable that's destroying the entire earth. So like there's a species level of the use and the impact of the teaching of, you know, desire as a thing to be let go of. And then there's also an individual level thing where it's like, you will actually, if you shake loose of these artificial external desires, you will actually find yourself in a much more comfortable, happy, actualized place and going towards things that continue to perpetuate that happy, comfortable, actualized, content place. You know, this is something that is part of something we talk about frequently on our regular episodes is turning the base. If you stop desiring things so much, the only other option that you have naturally is to be more content with where you are, what you are, what you have. And also, of course, to have a more objective viewpoint of those things. And having a more objective viewpoint of those things gives you the ability to actually strive for things that are both attainable positive and tenable and sustainable and worthwhile rather than things that are artificial, material, soulless, and and ultimately bad for the planet and the species. So next, um, Buddhist storytelling is cool. Uh, I have what, like, I run a tabletop RPG and I run it with a uh, custom setting you know, like I'm not using one of the established worlds that RPGs tend to go in. I'm using my own, and I have woven little bits of Buddhism into that writing, and my players have noted multiple times that they do like the way my world's lore is set up, and little bits of that are Buddhist. So, yeah, that's just weaving Buddhism into my storytelling has improved it. That's excellent. I'm glad to hear that. And I'm glad that it's being well received and stuff, you know, because since this is like what I do for a career, I'm a lot more steeped in Buddhist storytelling, Buddhist literature, Buddhist influenced art in East Asia across the ages. And I can see all that and I understand all that. And I see personally the value in that stuff and why I like it. But sometimes I have to remember that the people around me are, they're, they're much more steeped usually in the Western canon and Western tropes, Western systems, Western ways of, to- of storytelling and presenting things and Western types of characters and things like that. And those things are still familiar to me, but they're just not things that I really spend a lot of time with. And, um, or at least they're not things that I spend a lot of time with in my career and in what I, what I spend most of my time doing. 
Of course, I watch television shows and read books for leisure. And all these things are pretty strictly Western for the most part in the way that they do things. But what I'm saying is that there is a value to different ways of presenting characters and narratives and stories in the Buddhist-influenced lexicon. And it's interesting. It's fun. It's different from what we're used to, and yet it's still good writing. It's very fascinating, and it's very it's very good for building a world, and it's also very good for conveying themes that Western the Western vocabulary of storytelling may not be equipped to convey and deal with, like emptiness, like impermanence, things like that. It's very, very good in that regard. Next, um, the way Buddhism has wrapped in and welcomed figures and people from other religions is really cool. So we've talked at length about how Avalokiteshvara became syncretized with Guan Yin, and we've seen other instances, you know, where similar things happen. Um, when Buddhism encountered another religion, it tended to uh like based on what we've we've seen so far anyway uh it tends to bring it in and like make that other religion part of itself rather than trying to supersede and burn it down the way christianity tended to go so you know obvious exception for brahmanism/hinduism which it's, there are facts of history that make that a complex relationship. But, um, when, you know, with the exception, with that one exception, uh, Buddhism tends to be really cool about respecting the existence of other religions. It's very true. Yeah. I mean, in the case of Brahmanism, like you say, you know, they still brought it into the fold, but it was part of that cross denominational sniping. You know, the Hindu god Brahma, you know, one of the three faces of the divine one of the three most important gods in the entire religion suddenly became the Buddha's janitor. He became the guy that sweeps up after the Buddha whenever he goes places. Like that was that was some sniping. But the the issue like you were talking about of Guan Yin or of other cases we've brought up on the show, that is reflective of Buddhism's unique ability to localize and its unique ability to sort of spread not like fire, like some other religions have in the past, but like water, right? Fire just sort of destroys, fire travels really fast, and fire is hot, but it, like I say, it, it destroys. And then religion, a religion like Buddhism travels like water, where it doesn't really destroy stuff sometimes, it just kind of spreads around it, spreads to, it, it changes its form to account for it. It's something that is flexible and not destructive in all cases. And that's really cool. I like that too. And it makes it really interesting to study. You know, on on the one hand, one of the ways that I want to sort of explain that to myself is that many religions, especially Western ones, do claim to be, you know, like capital T true histories of the world. And so when they encounter different histories of the world, of course, their natural inclination is to say, well, that's wrong because this is the history of the world. You know, this is how the world was created. This is how people were created. This is what happened in the desert this many centuries, millennia ago. You know, this is how it was, not how you say. Buddhism doesn't necessarily do that. Buddhism doesn't tell a history of the world necessarily. And it does, it, it, because of that, it 
remains able to account for various histories of the world. And you should you should know whenever I'm saying history of the world, I'm talking about like religious um, cosmological stories, not necessarily like an actual true scholarly history of what happened when. It's it's more like whenever it, whenever it encounters more creation stories, whenever it encounters various apocalypse stories, when it encounters a pantheon of gods or spirits that existed there long before Buddhism ever showed up and continue to exist there just simply out of tradition, any kind of situation like that, it's able to sort of form around it and inform it and take it up and be okay and still not be in conflict in light of those things. And that's that's very good. Finally, although not least, uh, meditation is cool. When my pain was really badly not in control, meditation helped a little bit. And at that point, a little bit was really important. So, yeah, uh, meditation, you should do it. Meditation is very cool. And I hope that we've discussed and provided several different ways to do it and several different types of it on the show that might interest somebody and might help somebody somehow. I agree that it's very cool. And I, I think that we all do it in certain ways whenever we don't even realize it. And the practice is not actually to teach yourself how to do it, but how to practice realizing it in a specific time and place because you already do do it. Whenever you maybe go on autopilot when you're driving a car, that's a form of meditation. You know, if you're driving and you kind of get, they call it highway hypnosis, that's kind of a form of meditation. It's not a good place or time to do it, but it's certainly a, a type. And, you know, whenever you are dreaming and visualizing something while you're asleep, and you sort of maybe lucid dreaming and you have like conscious control over that visualization. That's another type of meditation. And so then sitting down and setting time aside in your daily life to meditate is not learning how to do it as much as I think it's just practicing doing it then instead of another time. So, yeah, there we go. That gets the broad points of what my opinion of the of the idea of Buddhism, the doctrines, the storytelling, the philosophy and all of that. That's where I that's where I am right now overall. That's good. I hope that we can continue to have good conversations about Buddhism and continue to learn about it together and in another year we might have a completely different list of things to talk about for our two-year retrospective. We'll find out then, I suppose. Anything else we need to get on the recording? Nope, I think that takes care of it. Okay, in that case, I think we're done. Thanks for listening to our one-year retrospective of Bright on Buddhism. We hope to see you next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much.